Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Of Poetry Podcast with Bronwyn Tate. Bronwyn Tate teaches poetry, creative nonfiction, and creative writing pedagogy at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. She's the author of the poetry collection, The Silk the Moths Ignore, and a contributor to the collaborative book-length poem, Midwinter Constellation. Bronwyn's poems and essays have appeared in Bennington Review, CV2, Grain, The Rumpus, Journal of Modern Literature, and Contemporary Literature. Her Substack newsletter, OK But How, goes deep on process and includes snacks. Hello and welcome, Bronwyn. Hi, happy to be here. Would you like to start us off with some poems from, oh, whichever collection you were going to begin with? Sure. Let me read one of the early ones from Suck the Moths Ignore. It's on page three and it's called Reproduction of Frescoes. Travel back. Because of a misstep, I saw a crevice in a horse's knee in place of brigands, play of light and color off their helms, reading in the original French, reading to be elsewhere. I look past it, first conception. I read Proust. In wide-sleeved houblon, she incarnates, swollen fruit of her manly form, a solid illusion, prod that membrane edged with ribbons of watercress or cuckoo flower. For each word, a word in another language means part of the same thing. When I look up midwife on the university website, the only reference is to Plato. Theodotus, he suggests, is in discomfort because he is in intellectual labor. Socratic method, myoetics without a uterus, the skill of drawing thought from a latent mind. I too want to be a scholar. I want a new vernacular of milk. Echo, echo on my perch with my library. Well-stocked dictionary sends me Latin, Lygium Spartum cultivated or not present here. Thank you. Of course. And such a beautiful poem and just intersects with so many things that I'm very interested in. And, um, uh, you know, thinking about knowledge production and thinking about reproductions. Um, and, and thinking about the, the limits of our language as like, you know, what, what dictionary are you going to, you know, is the source you're, you're going to going to have what you need um, and how our sources really shape our questions that we're able to ask. Um, Absolutely. Is there anything, I have a question, but is there anything you would like to say about this poem before I do? Sure. I mean, some of it is kind of laying some of the terms of the collection. So I like I was reading Proust and some of the poems from this come kind of out of that reading of Proust in French mm -hmm. and like reading, looking for words. I speak French well, but not perfectly. So I would read in French and I would like look for words that I didn't understand. And then I would try to guess at what I thought they meant based on context or, or based on like kind of etymology or what they were similar to in English. And then I would look them up and sort of in the sparks between the juxtapositions of sort of like what I thought they meant and what they actually meant, I would begin writing. Hmm. Um, and so that I think of it almost sort of like a force field or a like a lexicon early in the book. And a lot, a lot of movement happened over time, right? Mm -hmm. So lines got cut and things got moved and things from one poem moved to another poem. But I think there's still kind of like a, yeah, a vocabulary that lingers from that and a kind of mood maybe that lingers from that. Um, and I guess the other context is, a lot of this writing, especially the, the part of the university website, was when I was a doctoral student at Stanford and was trying to get pregnant and finding it not a terribly hospitable context for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that opens up so much. And I love the linking to Proust um, because there's such beautiful attention to um. I want to say it's like sensuality. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
and the senses and, you know, taste and scent. And, um, I think, you know, it, like I was first trying to think about your collection is like, Oh, it's doing with something really interesting with objects, but it's not, it's not just objects. It's, um, you know, like they're very, they're aesthetic objects. Right. And, um, I just, you know, I think it's amazing with in, in the kind of feeling I got was, and I think these are, you know, obviously particularized in your collection, but it's like fruit and it's, um, yeah. you know, sweetness and it's, um, all, you know, the, I think it's just like very, it, they're kind of objects that circle pleasure, um, mm -hmm. constantly mm -hmm. and, and attention to those things and kind of acknowledgement of those things. And like a day can have any number of those experiences, but like you not write them down, but you know, they're important to the speaker. Like they enter in, they constantly enter in and they're yeah. kind of ushered in. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so do you know yeah. that how much I'm going to have to look it up later to find exactly, but it's about like sadness and pleasure and it's like two buckets so a bucket of gold and a bucket of tin and it's like they both carry water oh no okay I'm gonna maybe I'll look it yeah. up and we have a break and I'll find it for you I taught it with uh in my class this term but it's sort of it mm -hmm. seems at first like it's making a big deal about the difference between the two buckets mm -hmm. you know of like being sad or being happy but in some ways it's like they both carry water becomes like they're both kind of containers for a kind of dailiness mm -hmm. right that that can be just the water, regardless of whether it's held in the happiness or held in the sadness. Hmm. So there's maybe something of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I love that. Mm. And it's like, there are things that you have to go out of your way to preserve. Like, you know, and I think about a lot of the conversations around practices of joy and, um, you know, I think it, it does kind of like bump up against that or intersect somehow that it's like, um, it's, it's labor, right. That there's also somehow labor involved in the acknowledgement of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I love the lines here. I too want to be a scholar. I want a new vernacular of milk. Um, and I'm so interested in the concept of, you know, vernaculars and ordinary languages and, um, kind of creating the language we need, which is such a huge relief to actually have when you can find it. And, um, just kind of like nodding yes in agreement to yeah. um, the university website experience. And um, I think when you use the word hostile, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, that's it. You know, mm -hmm. um, it, it, the university is a really strange place to be pregnant and, um, yeah. you know, even to like have breasts that are milk productive. <laughs> you yeah. know? It's like, um, yeah, so mm -hmm. much of that. I think I just I just hear the things that this poem is is weighing against each other and and putting on the same plate, so to speak. I mean, I think that I really did want to be a scholar, right? So mm -hmm. part of it was about this mm -hmm. sort of like, can I be a scholar? What does it mean to be a scholar? Can I be interested in what I'm interested in? Mm -hmm. You know, and and especially I was writing some about um, Lynn Hijinian and Bernadette Mayer's long poems, and it was sort of like you know, that moment when you're trying to find arguments and it's sort of everything feels either like so obvious or so unprovable. And you're like, surely there's got to be something that's between the obvious and the unprovable. Yeah. That's like a, a statement that I can make or a space that I can intervene, but it can feel very narrow, you know? Um, so I think it was probably, a, you know, I want to be a scholar for real, but then also what would it mean to think of this other desire as well? Um, to be pregnant, to have a child as a kind of scholarship, right? Um, and that itself as a kind of learning or inquiry to the vernacular of milk as sort of this new intimacy or this new embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the emphasis so often on argument when you are in academic spaces and um, I was told I was merely descriptive, right? It's like, Oh, oh no, you're my merely descriptive. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Oh, I could do so much with that. Right. Wow. Um, you know, I just, I discovered Rachel Zucker's work as a MFA student and mm. a home birth, a poemic was yeah, yeah, the yeah. first book I found. And um, Greenberg. yeah, I was mm -hmm. so drawn in, you know, I, I was really, you know, kind of an art student, just, just beginning to understand, um, 
kind of the currency of argument. And Mm -hmm. I could tell it was honored above other things. Mm -hmm. And so to read, read a poem that was a poem that was an argument that was so angry like I really was like oh yes (laughs) like I just um Mm -hmm. really felt like I found something there that I wasn't finding other places and that they understood something um really significant about what it's like to um basically have to navigate so many different discourses and Mm -hmm. um spaces Mm -hmm. and spaces that are shaped by those discourses and and values um and just the continual you know splice the medical establishment is kind of another whole vocabulary right yeah um and those language of sort of uh you know spontaneous aborder or Mm. you know um you know, products of conception or, mm-hmm. um, you know, incompetent cervix, right? That wasn't the case for me, but still this sort of really mm-hmm. strange yeah. language, right? Really yeah. alienating. Absolutely. And I mean, even just like, I remember being in a, um, an elevator at Georgetown when I was getting my mm-hmm. MA and I was in, in the elevator with a, a professor and he cut his finger and he was bleeding. So I pulled out a bandaid from my bag and I was like a commuter student. So I really needed to have everything on me and I gave it to him and he was like, thank you. And he was like, oh, you make such a good mother. And I was like, wow, like I'm this, I'm a graduate student. And he was like a, you know, he was definitely my parents generation and um, sure. But it's just like, okay, an act of caregiving in this context immediately yeah. mother tracks me in this way. I, I, know, yeah. I know, I wore I wore a suit one time to a mock interview mm-hmm. um, and two young male professors told me I looked like a real estate agent, which was like, if they wear a suit, it's professor. If I wear a suit, it's real estate agent, you it's know? Incredible. It's incredible. But the, the lack of awareness is incredible yeah. um, because aren't we supposed to be observant human beings in the, these departments? But um it's a, it's in yeah the gender stuff it will it will stalk us <laughs> yeah it's a thing um and it's it's really interesting like when you transgress them and when your body transgresses the borders that it's supposed mm-hmm. to transgress you know not supposed to transgress yeah um it is i like i think it's really if you can stand it it's really productive um, I feel like I've brought this up on this podcast before, but Elizabeth Bradfield has that beautiful essay in the poems country about, um, you know, border sites with like the littoral, the ocean and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. where land meets water that like these sites of, of disruption are also these major sites of life. Um, and I love, I love that idea that like, it's in these like chaotic spaces where many things are meeting and that's where we're actually Mm. like living our life. Like that's where things are actually happening. Um, Like you don't want this like safe, you don't want safe spaces where we like, you know, everything cordoned off. Yeah, exactly. Like compartmentalized and Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that's something that your collection, um, the Silk Moss Ignore is just, you know, over and over again, um, you know, in, in academia, we would say, say interrogating. I don't want to use yeah. that verb. Like, <laughs> it sounds like I'm holding a light in I its know. eyes, right? Like, I, know, I, know. <laughs> I, I typically like, you know, exploring or yeah, yeah, <laughs> some, yeah. you know, something different. Yeah. We can have a less, uh, less torture-based interrogation. Yeah, exactly. Less police, a less police-like interrogation. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, and I like thinking a lot of times about touchstones. I think yeah. that's um, like inquiry. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's me some sort of like pursuit or, or, you know, mm-hmm. or constellations. Yeah, for sure. But they're like constellations of concepts and, and modes. And um, I really love that you mentioned Lynn Hygienian's work um, because it's, you know, the people we study are mm-hmm. that like the way um kind of their forms moved by osmosis, I think across into our sure. own work can be sure. really, really cool. Um, so, you know, you're in, you're in Vancouver and, um, your publisher is actually in Southern California, right? Yes. With the yeah. 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 Inlandia Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting and cool so that you're, your book won the poetry award from the Inlandia Institute. I mean, that happened when I was still in Vermont. Okay. 
Okay. It, like it was accepted when I was still in Vermont mm-hmm. and then it came out once I'd moved here. That's really, yeah. that's, um, you know, as a, <laughs> as a small <laughs> press publisher now, I'm yeah. like really interested in the way books move and the authors. Yeah, totally. Um, and so that was like, really, it, I think it's a really cool bridging. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to see even, even more of that ability to do that. Yeah, I know it's hard yeah. to do with small presses, but, um, that's very cool. Um, and so I was, I was just thinking too, just about regions and regionality mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. um, and you've been West coast, of course, too, um, before. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I went, I did my PhD at Stanford, so I was in California for about 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, between yeah. my PhD and my postdoc, I was in Providence and New York. Mm. I lived in Italy for two years. Along wow. Yeah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and then I was in, in the woods in Vermont for three years oh. before coming to Vancouver. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm having a, uh, Jesus, <laughs> I see what you have done for others moment. <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to do the same for me. Uh, it's, it's amazing that where you get your PhD, you know, you spend 17 years, right? Yeah. Um, that's yeah. totally normal. And, um, in fact, my partner, Valley is a weird place to study mm, the humanities. Like, yeah. Yeah. That would be. And with like a lot of people who get their PhDs there, they end up like getting a job in tech just because they like kind of get rooted there or like oh. the money's so much better that it's sort of like, you know, <laughs> if they're going to take a terrible job somewhere where they don't know anyone or just mm-hmm. like, you know, uh-huh. start working for Twitter or start working yep. or whatever, you know? Wow. Yeah. And was your PhD, was it um, like creative or scholarly? No, it was comparative literature. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I, I do have thoughts and feelings about um, the difference in dissertations between the two. So <laughs> I think, man, I think there were not that many creative writing PhDs, but I also sort of had a feeling like if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do mm. like the most legit version of it oh. or something. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because, um, you know, when you, when you get to the, the really winnowed down subject that is yeah. your dissertation yeah, topic, yeah. And then you produce it and then it's in the library. And I'm, I was like, I felt good about my dissertation, you know, kind of contributing to that archive. But then yeah. I also feel like there are only 10 people in the world that will really want to read it. Um, yeah. A bunch of my PhD friends have been kind of putting their monographs out now, mm-hmm. um, which is really wonderful. And it's been cool to like see them go through that process. I mean, it has been a process. Yeah. Um, and I've continued to publish like some articles. Mm-hmm. I had one on Harriet Mullen just that just came out in the fall, oh, but I basically really cool. made the decision not to try to like revise mm-hmm. the dissertation into a monograph mm-hmm. um, when I got the job at the Tiny Liberal Arts College where I was both in creative writing and literature. I was sort of like, okay, I'm going to like the things that are already underway I'll do, but I'm not yeah. going to do that whole thing. Yeah. Bless you finding that position because <laughs> only I so think... much time in the world. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's such a good place to be. Um, especially when you've written, you know, you're writing on contemporary literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's just wonderful. Now I want to, now I want to read your article on Harriet mm-hmm. Mullen. So I will have to include links in our show notes to that sure. as well for folks who are interested. Um, because I do think like there are so many more readers for contemporary literature, um, and interest as I think there should be, um, you know, I say that as an early modernist. So, (laughs) Ah. um, so one of the poets that come to mind when I was reading your collection was Hopkins, who I, I really love, um, in fact, I was thinking this morning, I was like, well, who doesn't love Hopkins? Yeah, right. I was like, are there people I'm who like, don't that's like so flattering. Hopkins? <laughs> <laughs> if they of- do, they'd never admit it, right? <laughs> right. I feel like he's kind of an unproblematic fave. Um, so, so, uh, but it's really cool because, you know, you move, you move into domestic spaces, you move into Proust influences space I mean that you're doing like there's definitely a translation that happens but then there's um I think there's like a richness of language um of observation uh, but particularly I think I really fell down on not fell down but you know in terms of sonics for me that was and some of the things you're doing with sound 
that for that's what for me was the Hopkins pool. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to ask you about that and, you know, ask about other influences. I'm sure I'll be surprised by. Sure, sure. I mean, the Hopkins one makes me very happy because I just, I mean, I feel like almost get like a, a drug from reading him, right? It's like <laughs> your senses get rewired slightly when you read, um, you know, the Windhover or Sybil's Leaves or something, right? It's like, yeah. um, and I think that's really the, that kind of thing that's maybe unique to poetry is that like incantatory and the sound work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I teach a class that's around pleasures of poetry. I'm about to teach in July to graduate students. Um, and the ones that I identify are specificity, intimacy, sound pattern, um, mm-hmm. excess and restraint as kind of these paired opposites, yes. mm-hmm. uh, surprise and insight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like some of them also function in other genres, you know, so specificity in fiction or whatever, but I feel like that sound work and that pattern work and the, and the patterns that sound make are sort of most in their element or most fully realized in poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, with the sound, a lot of the writing in here was a kind of reaching by ear at some point. Um, and finding real like satisfaction and pleasure in those like kind of subtle patterns of sound building. Mm -hmm. Um, So that makes me really happy to hear it. I guess another, I'd say pretty big influence um, is Lorene Niedecker. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the little poems are pretty much a kind of version of her five line poems, um, some of which she does singly and some of them like Panda Place is like a whole bunch yeah. of those yeah. in a row. Um, but that as kind of a, yeah, both a, a distillation, but also a kind of thing where there's the rhyme in it, but it doesn't end on rhyme, mm-hmm. um, which I find like a really interesting um way to inhabit a small poem. Mm, I'd love to hear that. Um, I love Niedecker's work and, and it's, it's interesting because there's something so like spare, spare mm-hmm. about her work. Um, and I feel like spareness, like I don't, you know, like in your book, there's such a, you know, whatever's the opposite of, of spareness, like there's such a, a richness, um, mm-hmm. And that, like the like the kind of discipline of observation, excess and restraint yeah. are in dialogue, yeah, totally. right? I was also thinking about Jane Hirschfield's book when you were talking, um, hiddenness, uncertainty, surprise, mm-hmm. which is such a you know I I love I love thinking about um the, those essays are are really good and you know she talks about like being in the Zen garden and like from from any point, you know, there are like these, I'm, I might be getting the number wrong, but I think they're like seven rocks. And from any point you can mm-hmm. see like five of them, but not sure. the other two. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's like really cool. Mm-hmm. That sort of state of withholding or partialness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I know. And, you know, talking to our students about what you leave out as being the most mm-hmm. important, um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I think anyone who's ever lied by omission totally understands leaving things out. <laughs> like what human hasn't done that? Like, oh, I'm just not going to tell you X, but I will tell you Y and Z. Um, <laughs> she should understand something really important about poetry. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the reproductions of frescoes, the title you read um, and the poem you read, um, and also I really like that that's in, um, you know, if we want to call them verse stanzas or, or paragraphs or yeah, I call them versets call. sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Keith Waldrop has called them when he's done his translations. I, I, like that. In that and I like that. Yeah. I really like that. I also like the looks like prose sounds like a poem, mm-hmm. um, definition of it's, I feel you know, like- those are kind of, they're working in syntax and they're not working in line, but they are working across paragraph, you know, yeah. so sort of syntax and, and space in that way, but not line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something really generous about the form. Like, I feel like you can hold that it's, it's such a um, intrinsically hybrid form. Um, 
you know, in, you know, in terms of it being these small units that, you know, you can call them a paragraph, you can call them a first paragraph. Yeah, they were, sentence. they were all kind of prose blocks at one mm, point, mm-hmm. And then the spacing of them out happened mm. later. Yeah. And I think did really necessary kind of like decompression and aerating, of yes. them, you know, yes, and like telling you when you can rest a little bit on something mm-hmm. and when to keep going. Yeah. It's really interesting to me when that happens, it's like an 11th hour edit too, when you've mm-hmm. got like the finished, like my, uh, I'm working on a manuscript right now that opens with a section poem. And I was just like, maybe these sections need to be on their own page and like yeah. to introduce space and silence that way. It does something really different. Absolutely. Um, it really changes really does. Mm-hmm. Um, and what with rising cost of of production yeah (laughs) it's claiming something right you're saying this deserves its space it deserves its silence yeah really 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 Mm -hmm. um it's always the weird thing with collecteds where everything's kind of put on the same page right yeah Yeah. I don't like that (laughs) I get it but I'm always a little like "Mm." (laughs) not the same yeah I didn't I I didn't realize um is that something that's more done done more often with collected yeah Yeah. I I think about like Lucille Clifton I think or like some Mm -hmm. Yates I've been reading recently it's like a yeah that's really interesting that it's not like a selected or you know Mm -hmm. the difference between collected and complete like that's something that's tripped me up in the past (laughs) Well, the like one I think Michael. that doesn't maybe is Robert Creeley, which I appreciate. It's two mm. volumes and they get their own pages. Mm. Makes sense. Makes right. Sense. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, I just hate to see things split across pages. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not as the poet intended or, you know, maybe somebody, somebody with this, I saw someone uh, when I was in Philly, who was one of my first students wasn't mm-hmm. when I was an MFA student at Brown. So he was like, you know, 19 and I was 23 or something. And wow. we stayed friends. Um, and we met up and he was like, guess what my favorite part in the book was, um, <laughs> or something. And he, he mentioned, uh, there was like a bit that was on its own. And I was like, oh, it's distant diminishing glow. The like moon bit that's on its oh. own page. And he was like, was that an accident? And I was like, no, I was on Aww. purpose. I mean, it happened, but then I, I could have moved it up, but I didn't. Right. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Um, would you like to read that? Uh, sure, sure. Let me see if I can find it. That's mm-hmm. the only thing with this. Let me mark these ones too. So here for all the moons. The moon, yeah, <laughs> lots of moons. <laughs> yes, for readers who are into moon poems, mm-hmm. um, you will need Bradwin Tate's book mm-hmm. because you'll be pleasantly accompanied by moons. It's funny how you can know something so well and then also be like, where is that one? I have no idea. Yeah, it, but it's so different to have your poems in a book as opposed to loose leaf. Or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they've been around so many times. All right. Moon without possible approach. Did friends neglect me because they had everything I wished? Kept a waiting room in flowers, blue of winter afternoon pressed against the windows, cheek cooled against condensation. I slept the sleep I had no relish for while they paced through colic. Rejoicing covers me with pastry, I am pinched. Easy confidence of strangers at dinners. Blushing announcements are not punished for their fearlessness, and why should they be? One form listed diagnosis, spontaneous aborder, rage at who names a body. Most people experience this as a loss, the first doctor said. I am fond of a hedge at this hour. Find a cobalt marble, smooth bone I plucked from a stone wall, gritty silt in the pocket of last year's jacket, dizzy clustered asters, steep path frock coat of discretion, dovecoat small shelter in a rainstorm, blood wet white feathers mired, distant diminishing glow. That is so beautiful. And I love that, the distance of that final line. Thank you. 
Amen. with the, the blood wet white feathers mired. That's the kind of sound work mm-hmm. that I like. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's talk about description. Sure. Since, um, since that's something I love so much about this collection and, um, since it's something you've, you've received feedback on in the past, um, tell me your, tell me your theory of description. I'd love to hear it. Oh gosh. I mean, I guess I would say most immediately description is selection and description Mm -hmm. is interpretation. Mm -hmm. All right. So description is always some things and not other things, right? It's always leaving some things out and choosing some things over other things. And then it's also, I mean, it's never, I guess it's never innocent, right? It's never only what is there. It's always an interpretation and a valuing and a prioritizing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. Um, And I think that's really like it's such a generous description and um, kind of a truthful, like, the, like when you say description isn't innocent, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, Whoa. Um, I think of the just and loving gaze um, mm-hmm. from Simone Fay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's something I tell my students that, you know, description is poetry. So Um, even if you feel like you can't write, you know, if you can look at a piece of art and you can describe something, or you can look at your day and you can describe something that, you know, that something special is happening there. I always think, always think of Elizabeth Bishop's poem, the fish, um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. too, for like really looking at something. Yeah. And I really used to just had a, had a chapter on her in Creeley actually speaking. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. As for me, I mean, I guess that connects to what we're talking about as well. I, I wrote about them as different kinds of presence. Mm-hmm. And for me, Bishop is a kind of immersive presence mm-hmm. in a way, like often, not always, but often you're kind of into the world and the detail of the world. Whereas I see Creeley as kind of a presence that like pushes you into your own body in the moment and kind of like refuses to let you immerse into the poem, but it's like a kind of presence in like the articles and prepositions of language and kind of presence in like your own body, the hand on the page or the like, yeah. 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 If that resonates with your reading experience. No, absolutely. Yeah. The immersive, immersive presence of Bishop is yeah, absolutely. Um, And when I was younger, I really didn't like that poem, the fish with the the rainbow, rainbow, rainbows. You know, I didn't like the, um, I didn't like how real it was the, mm. um, the whiskers and the fish yeah. and the, um, the hooks and the lines. lines. Yeah, yeah. I just, I think I found it a little gross. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, it's, that's, it's really interesting. The things that grow on you as you get older. And, um, mm-hmm. I didn't like guess- Hopkins terrible sonnets either. Yeah. Description and specificity, right? And I feel like specificity, which is what we get in Bishop becomes that kind of lever that can like move anything, Mm -hmm. right? It's like if a detail is kind of precise and like embodied and sensory and particular enough, it can become this kind of lever that can like really, or like a portal that can really take you somewhere completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that as you like grow as a writer, like poetry can do so many more things that maybe we have more of a limited understanding when we start just because we don't have that many models. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, Mm -hmm. the questions you can ask and the things you can think about are limited by your models. And so like when they grow. Yeah. That's, you know, I feel like there's been some reactions against like imitative writing recently as constraining. And I, I see that it can be, but I feel like for me and my teaching so often I've seen it instead be this like really wonderful permission Mm -hmm for people, you know, and, and there can be a thing, I think sometimes where people are like, oh, that person can do that, but like, I could never do it. Or like, it's not allowed for me. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes if people can step into, you know, like being asked to like really directly imitate or to Mm -hmm. directly step in, inhabit someone else's poetics that way, Mm -hmm. it really does become not a constraint, but like a permission that they're able to carry with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've just started to notice, um, I guess, or pay attention to some of the criticisms against like writing imitations, but um, I really think they are the answer to, you know, not writing 
maybe disrespectful after poems or like, mm-hmm. like that, you know, again, it's like the permission thing, like I'm going to imitate this person. And the point isn't that I write a poem, I will then go and publish and have a byline for the point is to engage with the language a certain way. And that it's like, right. it is. And to see what's, what stays the same for me when I fit, when I inhabit these different ways, mm-hmm. right. Formally, like what yeah. remains consistent or. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite exercises with my students is like a free write. I did it last summer and I did this summer is um, reading an excerpt from Lucy Ellman's Ducks Newberry Port. And then we do a, um, the fact that exercise mm. where you just, you know, you write the fact that the fact, that. and um, especially with STEM students who don't do a lot of writing, it's just, you know, it's just permission to be like, you don't have to enter sentence. You can add as many things as you want. Mm-hmm. You can free associate and take Lucy Elman's form. And um, mm-hmm. they love that one. They're like, oh, I couldn't stop. And I was mm-hmm. like, yes. <laughs> it, can be, it can be fun to juxtapose with uh, Kate Colby's. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that one. Yes. which is a similar kind of repeated and hinging of the, like, what is this, what I mean? Or I mean, as intention, right. That like mm. to just keep like anchoring in that. I love that you bring up Kate's work. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I really love. Um, and she has a book coming out from Ornithopter Press soon. Awesome. So that's really exciting. I always want to drop a, another press into the conversation. Yeah. Um, while we are here, um, when I was at um, AWP. I was at AWP as well. Um, and, um, I was at the black Lawrence, um, booth and, um, I think, I think I had midwinter constellation in my hand or just set it down. I don't remember. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, Casey Judd's walked up and there was one copy left and Casey Mm -hmm. was like, Oh, are you getting that copy? And I'd already had like my arms full. So it, it would have been kind of, um, rude to be like, yes, I'm also getting this, but, but so Casey, <laughs> all the books are belong to me. <laughs> so, um, but it was like really beautiful because we were all interested. I think everyone that we were standing with there, were all interested in Midwinter Constellation. Um, would you like to say a little bit about that collection? Sure. Um, I mean, it was such a kind of lovely experience. Basically Becca Claver set it up, um, and it was a series of Google docs, mm-hmm. um, and then there was a whole bunch, I think maybe 35 of us or something who, wow. who rode into them throughout the day and some longer passages and some shorter passages. And, you know, I, I had done that chapter on, on Bernadette Mayer and, uh-huh. and Lynn Hedginian. And so it was a book that had really lived with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in my sections, I kind of tried to inhabit her style mm-hmm. for the different sections, you know, cause sometimes she's in lines and sometimes she's in, in prose, um, I think it's a really interesting version of collaborative writing because um, the sections are marked by these stars where it changes person, but we're not always in the same order. In fact, like I remember Shanna and Danielle kind of joking about it, like I keep being first, I'm going to like go down here now, right? Um, And you can kind of tell who's who sometimes, but not always. Mm. And so it does sort of feel like a kind of chorus or, and you can tell because someone mentions their child or like a highway sign um, but a lot of it, it kind of could be any of us in certain moments and that's neat too. Yeah. That is so cool. I will definitely, I do need to get my, my copy. Oh, <laughs> I do need to, um, again, we did a, the idea we did a reading for it. Oh, um, yeah. and I, I read a bit, which was, um, based on the part in midwinter day, when she like describes the, the books that she reads to her children, mm. And I had also been reading to my children. So I did these like plot summaries of various children's books. Um, And then the other ones were like, you need to start a podcast that's just you like Mm. doing plot summaries of children's books. Amazing. Amazing. Someday, maybe if I have enough time, that's very funny. Could you read us a few of them? Sure. Let me see if I can find that section. That's the other thing is since it's all like mingled together. Yeah. Um, There's also that, Yeah. Just like that beautiful moment in collaborative writing where you you can't remember who wrote right. what you like. There was one remember. where someone was like, I lost my grandmother's ring too. And then it was like, uh, maybe it's you. Maybe that is Interesting. you. Yeah. Um, where like some of us, we had even forgotten, you know, which part was our own, which was very funny. It's such a, Midwinter's Day is such a powerful 
just a powerful poem. And um, after I first read it, I think I was still at the point where I was taking my children around to like play, you know, play dates or uh, taking them to the mm-hmm. Museum of Life and Science. And I do sitting while they were like running around, you know. Yeah. All right. I found it. You want to hear oh, this great. bit? Yes, please. Or do you want to finish telling me about? No, no, no. Go right ahead. Okay. Like Bernadette, I'm trying to read and make soup at the same time with the clamor of the small children. It's a pleasure to chop red onions and green and red peppers the same and in between chopping to read about teaching fiction and think about truth. I like Nancy Powell's bright moves, but she says genre fiction is like a brownie mix. I think any genre, including literary fiction, has its formulaic versions, and I want students to read Ursula Le Guin, Octavia Butler, Italo Calvino, Margaret Atwood, N.K. Jemison, sure, and Eloisa James or Jacqueline Carey or Dorothy Sayers and Josephine Tay. I toast cumin seeds and grind them to powder in the surabachi. Owen says the smell is intense. I mix the cumin into sour cream with salt and put it in the fridge for later. Vesper is whiny and Owen keeps hurling his body on the kitchen floor and almost tripping me says it's because the floor is slippery so I offer to read them some stories. First we read Too Many Mittens which is a story about how some twins named Ned and Donnie lose one red mitten and then have all the neighbors and delivery people bring them endless other dropped red mittens until they finally hang up all the mittens on a line in their backyard for others to come and claim. Is there a conflict? Not really. Sometimes children don't care if nothing happens in a story. They like the thought of having too many mittens, of everyone thinking every red mitten they find belongs to you. Then we read another old book called Broderick about a mouse who learns to surf. It's an old book, so I think it'll be good, but it's not. The mouse is ambitious and learns to surf using a tongue depressor that he waxes with a bit of candle. He becomes famous, which seems to prove everyone who doubted him wrong, and that's about it. He retires to a handsome cottage and signs autographs. Finally, we read A Friend for Mousekin. Last night, we read Mousekin's Golden House, where a mouse finds a jack-o'-lantern and makes a home for himself in it, a little golden room all full of feathers. And then winter comes and the jack-o'-lantern sags with cold and closes its eyes and mouth. So you can imagine the mouse very cozy. In the friend book, the field mouse is looking for a friend, but he keeps mistaking birds and plants for potential mouse friends and then getting disappointed. Of course, he finds another mouse in the end when they both flee the same weasel and leap into an abandoned nest together. I read between the two children. They're always on my body when I'm home. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I hope all of our Bernadette Mayer um, loving listeners are going to get their copy of Midwinter Constellation if they haven't. And now I'm like, yes, I definitely... Maybe, maybe I should have like held on to Bought know, for it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, see, this one's fine. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. Um, it's, it was just a really, you know, I think I've missed having, you know, face-to-face experiences yeah. over books. So actually I was standing there with Rhett Troll from Cape Wall Press and Casey mm-hmm. and um, it was just really lovely to all be gathered around some of the same books and just for a brief moment masked in this yeah. conference hall or, you know, but yeah, um, those are very precious moments now, I think. Mm-hmm. It's been weird to move during pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, because it's sort of not exactly returning to a a pre-established social or like kind of yeah. friend context. And so very, yeah. very slow. Yeah. yeah. I really, I know I, I kind of default to hermiting. So mm-hmm. um, I couldn't believe how good I felt when I got back from AWP, like just seeing people, mm-hmm. I like for my mental health, I just felt amazing. I was like, wow, yeah. like that. I didn't realize like oh, I can't just avoid people for a year and a half and it not have an impact on like how I feel. Um, No, and planning things, the stress of it. And what if I have to cancel this? Or what mm -hmm. if that changes feels so pressing Mm -hmm. that like you can kind of forget the parts that really are needed and, you know, restorative. Yeah. Yeah. And as I thought, it was school that brought COVID back to our home. So, Uh, so yeah, so it's good that we can have this conversation online and teach online and all those good things. Um, 
but that was just I really so cool. missed cooking with other people. I finally mm. went to Montreal for a conference and then went back to Vermont and visited some friends. And we made a whole bunch of tamales together and just sort of being in a kitchen with a bunch of other people and give somebody this job and I'm doing that oh, job yeah. and chatting between cooking is something I just miss so much. Gosh, yes. Yeah. Mm, I feel that. I know the meals, I think the meals are really important. Um, my family's been defaulting to, uh, we, the kids are into mm-hmm. Dr. Who now. So we have been actually uh, eating dinner while watching Dr. Who a few nights, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like right on the edge of intensity for them. Like sometimes they're like, this yeah. is, but they're obsessed with, um, adult, adult media. And so they're like, yes, mom and dad. So, um, yeah, it it's about the perfect level. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But, um, yeah, we've been watching Star Trek: The Next Generation, oh, yes. mm-hmm. which is nice because they're just they're so episodic that it's never like, oh, it's a cliffhanger. It's always like this story is done and dusted. Like, let me go to bed. <laughs> you know, exactly. Uh, I know. And there's all these sort of funny like early '90s utopian versions mm-hmm. of you know the planet of gender reversal, where like <laughs> you know Riker's wearing his like ballet top with the deep V oh, or whatever, and it's just like, let me try to explain to you like what is happening. <laughs> here right yeah yeah it's so I know um so good we definitely it's a Star Trek next gen as well um so so this is their um I mean it's, I'm really interested in how like the shape of your days or you know like how, how our media changes with the yeah. pandemic like the, you're like well we're not doing in, like right now, my my yeah. rule is I'm like, we don't do indoor children's birthdays. We'll do outdoor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, anytime it's like a crowd and it's unmasked, I'm like, yeah. nope. Um, yeah. So my son yeah. just had his birthday and he like clapped out the candles. Aww. And I feel like that's become the new mode, right? Aww. It's sort of like you don't yeah. blow on your cake. You clap out those candles, you know, oh, and I feel like is that yeah. just what it's going to be now? Right. Yeah, totally. I know. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's funny with doing so many things online because I feel like it can, it can seem like this total loss of the sensory and of like the actual experience in some ways, even though it has its own texture and its own embodiment at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, But when, when the pandemic started, I was at that tiny liberal arts college in Vermont mm. and the college ended up merging with uh, Emerson in Boston. So it was like the last semester of that college wow. on that campus. And wow. it feels in some ways like we were kind of robbed of a certain kind of closure being able to actually kind of end together. And you know, there'd be this sort of Zoom faculty meeting or like, you know, some walks with students, yeah. but there did feel like there was a real difference between the things we were able to do in person and the things that were remote, you know? Yeah, that's really, that is hard. Um, I feel that way, just even missing the the kids last week of school this week, um, with mm-hmm. them being home. Um, I feel sorry for that. It's always, uh, I like, I think my recommendation would be always go for the closure when you can, um, too, because even pre-pandemic, um, I, I skipped my graduation at Duke mm. to be at a conference because conferences uh-huh. are so important at that point. Yeah, um, yeah. And it turned out it really wasn't that important. And I probably should have just walked and had some closure after seven years. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, for my MFA, it just sort of felt like, oh, this was so lovely to have this time. And I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. But for my PhD, I really felt like I earned this. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely. Know? Absolutely. <laughs> different feel to it. Mm-hmm. For my Georgetown graduation, I carried my six-month-old mm-hmm. like on our walk around the you know yeah because I yeah. was like Owen, we all did this <laughs> yeah Owen was maybe 15 months something like that mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. just over a year special times <laughs> so much um and you know speaking you know we've brought up reproduction and we've talked about um I mean I, I know I've said the word domestic and we've brought up some different mm-hmm. um elements but um, I mean, the moon, right? The moon appearing so many, so often throughout and, and the, like the special tie of moon to bodies, um, I think is so important for your, your collection. Um, and I know we've, we're moving from talking about 
uh, midwinter constellation kind of back sure, to yeah. the silk the moss ignore so i wanted to mention that um but also like i mean kind of the tides of the body and um the pools on the body and mm-hmm. i mean that's like a really powerful presence throughout would, would you like to say a little bit more about that or sure i mean I think there are bits where maybe I mentioned tide specifically, but the way you're talking about it is making me just sort of think about kind of the body's unknowability mm-hmm. and uncontrollability. And I think in some ways that's why trying to get pregnant and, and having difficulty with it. One of the reasons it's so challenging is because there's both this like mix of things that seem like they're in your control and things that really completely aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all these kind of decisions that you might have to make, right. Of, are you going to do this? Are you going to, you know, you, you've miscarried. Are you going to like, uh, get a DNC or not, right? Like how long do you wait for something? When does your body feel ready for something? Or, you know, I think for people who end up, you know, needing or deciding to do different kinds of interventions, right. There's so many choices that you might make of how many cycles of IVF or how many, you know, at what point do you give up? At what point do you do this? But then there's also so much about it. That's so completely beyond your control and things that might even be like when I, when I first finally went in to like a fertility clinic, I was already pregnant with Owen, um, but I didn't know yet. Right. Um, so these things that, right are oh, happening you have no control uh-huh. and may even already be there and then I mean just to mention the other weird part about that is that it cost a different amount because I was already pregnant you know and that was covered and if I hadn't been the same ultrasound would have cost more money right wow yeah which I know hmm. maybe not in the book the same way but I feel like it is part of that conversation right yeah. it's like what yeah what it costs to want something yeah and the itemizing, um, mm-hmm. I mean, this has been a conversation too, in, in like larger contexts of like, or, or like, you know, the itemization of a, a parent holding the infant on their bare chest after birth. And like, mm-hmm. that was itemized to a certain amount or like, yeah. well, um, sort of like those things that, that say that breastfeeding is free. Right. And it's oh, like, well, no, only, <laughs> only if you don't value the time. Right. Well, yeah. And like all the accoutrements, yeah. like there's, I mean, like the pillow and the pump and the blah, blah, blah. And the bags and the, I yeah. know they're like a thousand you know, when you start understanding the kind of, um, the production and the marketing around having a baby and how huge, mm-hmm. like it's huge in terms of capital, yeah. like that's yeah. discouraging too. Um, yeah. there are just so many. Yeah. I've been thinking a little bit and I'm kind of interested in, in your thoughts about kind of the category, especially of mothering or of mom as this category that's like both like reviled and privileged at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of like, you know, reviled in a way of sort of like things are not set up for it or kind of like mom genes or right. But then at the same time, I feel like mom can also be this category that like excludes queerness mm-hmm. that like is centers whiteness. And that's like really icky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And um, I mean, I think I, I grew up really Protestant, right? So mm-hmm. when I learned about like Marian theology, I was like, whoa. And I thought maybe this is what Protestants, maybe we would have less misogyny if we had mm-hmm. like, you know, and sometimes it's even referred to as the cult of Mary. Um, sure. So, but you know, um, that's, you know, patently untrue. Like there's just as much misogyny <laughs> yeah. and if not more, more. Sure. right. Like, yeah, because yeah. when you put anyone on a pedestal and suddenly yeah. you raise all of their actions to this level where they have to be perfection Absolutely. or um, aspirational or, um, I mean, I really brought up your lines. Um, I too want to be a scholar. I want a new vernacular of milk. I brought those up because in part, like quite selfishly, um, becoming a mother while a, a graduate student um, was so hard for me because I could feel the way I was just being dropped into this paradigm. Like I was like, wait a minute. I, I wasn't sure I wanted to be there, but I was mothered. Like I was yeah. formed into yeah, yeah, the yeah. form of a mother. And sure. I cut, you know, at the time I, I cut off my hair. Um, I did a lot of the things mm-hmm. I do now that was more understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it was really, really hard for me. And I knew I loved my baby and I knew that there were forms of like parenting. I really wanted to be very, very involved in, but I also knew there were things I wanted to pull away from and resist. So like, I think now we have so much more language, even Mm -hmm. for talking about Mm -hmm. it. Um, and my mom is very much a tomboy. And, um, so these even, you know, forms, forms of life I've seen in my own, my, my own life. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that kind of has to be wrestled with a little, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine who just had twins, um, is a colleague, Mandy Lynn Catron, and she was talking about like how the nurses right away, like start calling you mom, mm-hmm. you know, like even right after you have a baby and it's sort of like, I'm not your mom. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, and they might call a guy dad maybe, but it's not the same kind of like, Hey mom, like this is who you are in this yeah. way, like completely. And to everyone, not just to the child. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, maybe it's from, because I'm from the South. I always find yeah. that kind of sweet. I find it like mm-hmm. baby or sugar, or, um, mm-hmm. if I'm, re- I remember like running and pushing a stroller and, um, a guy ran past me and he was like, get it mama. Or he said something. And I, don't, <laughs> I didn't like find that like offensive. I was sure. like, oh, like, yeah, support. I, I also think like, you know, and my kids call me mom. And, um, yeah. I think it's like, really open in terms of gender. Like anyone can be a mom, um, yeah. or anyone can be a dad. And so like, yeah, yeah, I'd probably love to see that term opened to everyone who wants mm. it, um, more than anything Megan else. Megan Nelson, the many gendered mothers. Of my yeah. Heart. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but it, it is, um, but I also use language of parenting and language of care because mm-hmm. that like that language needs to be accessible to everyone too. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And when it's, when it's flexible language, um, but it's, yeah. It's great because it is still such an expectation. So like the schools or whatever, right? Like it's a room mom, not a room mm-hmm. parent often, right? Or sort of like the expectations on, on momming. And so sometimes it seems like there's necessary work that that kind of gendered term does. And yet, what is it? what does that leave out or what does that not fully, you know, mm-hmm. allow participation for openness for? Yeah. Yeah. I know. And also it's like, you know, with, with my children, it's yeah. like, it, I'm like, I tell them like, it's really special. Like it's really special to your mom. Um, yeah. and, um, mm-hmm. but then I'm like, yeah, you can also call me dude and bro if you want. So that's fine. <laughs> so we like laugh about that Um, yeah so sometimes when my son is cooking we get in a like a professor game and we just all call (laughs) each other professor so it's like oh would you like the knife professor thank you professor that's amazing yes (laughs) we we have a hot tub and um like there was been some nights when we've been oh I think we were talking like politics and um and the kids wanted to get involved and so we we asked like what would you prefer to be called and it was like Mm. this one wants to be called the gentleman from North Carolina and this one wants to be called the gentle person from and so like (laughs) we came up with all these like you know forms of address it was hilarious um just like you know bringing back like the fun and the play of language Mm. and the Mm -hmm. choosing like you choose your language um has been I think a really great part um and and playful I mean this is kind of an aside but you know talking about um like the collective nouns for children and or nieces and nephews and there's like the nibblings which is like the gender neutral yeah (laughs) and my kids were like not into that um and so I was like, well, what are, so we were talking about it and I was like, what are some of these, like, you know, there's like little people and they were like, no. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's like little folk or there's like, we went, <laughs> they decided, they told me they were like, we like vermin. Up to vermin. <laughs> nice. I was like, okay, I might not call you that in public, but uh, <laughs> please refer to us as your spawn. Yes. <laughs> okay. Like some people might see that as pejorative. Yeah. It's so funny. Like what happens when you give them that agency? Um, you might come up, you might have some collective now naming that is not what other people expect. Um uh, this has been such a wonderful time um to share with you, Bronwyn. Would you like to close us out with a poem or two? 
Sure. Maybe I'll just read a couple of those ones that are more in the Niedecker vein, if you'd I'd like. love that. Um, so I'll just read two that are next to each other. Um, this one's called In the Exhaustion of Care. Night vomit. Hot bath, you say. Colder than I'd rather. I lather half your hair. 4 a.m. Careful. I cough into the pillow. Still you cry. Small hands all day. Body unsovereign. How deep is patience? Mealy peaches. Sweet thing. Sleep at last. Rejected breast. My unconsoled. Leaked milk now cold against my wrist. And this next one is called Against Reaction. Make a study of patience. Lift him shrieking from the bath. Let hands tell only tenderness. Let him through childhood's wilderness. No limit free of anger. Thank you so much. Those are beautiful. Thank you. Um, and I hope everyone can check out the show notes. We will have links to Brahman Tate's collection, The Silk the Moths Ignore from Inlandia Institute, as well as link to Midwinter Constellation and Bronwyn's Substack newsletter, Okay, But How, which I am planning on subscribing to as soon as possible. <laughs> it's somewhat occasional, uh, so it won't overwhelm you with too much regularity. <laughs> we'll put it that way. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Absolutely a pleasure.